0: Welcome to the Rooftop Podcast. Guess what, boys and girls? It's a driveway edition. Yep, the name of this episode is "Turn the Page: The Strategic Cost of Leaving Our Post-9/11 Veterans Behind." And to do this one, boys and girls, I gotta walk, man. I gotta walk. Uh, I tell you what, we've been on the road. Uh, as I'm recording this right now, we just wrapped up another performance of "Last Out: Elegy of a Green Beret." in cooperation sponsorship with the Gary Sinise Foundation our little nonprofit, the Hero's Journey is just we're just taking this play all over the country and I have to tell you it is not only a healing and cathartic process to have had this play in development and uh in 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 the hopper for six years now um it just it it keeps me healthy it um I tell people all the time, like, if you want to know why Operation Pineapple Express and these other volunteer efforts were necessary, come see Last Out, (laughs) and you'll see why it ended up the way it did. People watch the play, and they think, man, um, you wrote that after the Afghanistan collapse. How did you do that so fast? And I say, no, I didn't. We just knew how it was going to end. You know, I saw in a microcosm the way that we abandoned our allies in uh, 2013 from the Afghanistan Village Stability Operations Program, VSO. We just left our village elders in the lurch. We left those villages without much warning at all, and they were obliterated as a result of it. So, you know, none of that really surprised me at all. Um, It really, really didn't. Um, I've seen this just, just time and again. Um, but traveling with this play, what it has done is given me the opportunity on the heels of the Afghanistan collapse on writing Operation Pineapple Express and interviewing so many of our iconic veterans and Afghan allies, and, you know, frankly, some leaders at the institutional level, and then testifying to Congress and in the preparation for that And then performing this play as we travel the country, it has given me the opportunity to do what I love the most, which is to run the scenes. One minute I'm at kind of a strategic policy level talking to folks. The other minute I'm down, um, you know, at the street level talking to guys like Joe and Aiden who have, have, have stood up Operation Allies Refuge um, for, you know, the, 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 Warfighters fighters and other expeditionary diplomats who are dealing with the moral injuries from being at Kabul International Airport. Like, talking to the volunteers from Moral Compass, Sacred Promise, Flanders Fields, who incurred such moral injuries from the volunteer efforts that they did. And then, of course, our Afghan allies. Like, I've spent a lot of time, you guys, just talking and listening, listening to how this event that happened in the summer of 2021 has landed with our veteran population. And of course, I'm talking about the 800,000 Afghanistan war veterans from the United States, but also, you know, hundreds of thousands more of post 9-11 veterans who who fought in Iraq and endured similar outcomes, right? Um, listening to Vietnam war veterans who've, who've almost been Re-engaged, reignited by the way this thing went down, and it was so hauntingly similar to their shitty journey, you know, coming out of this thing. And I was just at the play. It was after the play. I was reflecting on all of the things that we do. Talkbacks after every show, and we've done close to a hundred shows now over the years. We've probably thirty cities. And we do a talk back after every single show. And we come out on the stage after we do this powerful two-hour performance and we listen to the audience and we hear their comments. And I'm just, I'm just telling you, I've, I've had my ear to the ground a lot, man. And I've got a lot of insights on what people are thinking, right? And so I just felt like there needed to be a podcast episode dedicated to the attempts, both deliberate and, and in some cases unconscious, to turn the page on this, this, this post-9-11 long war, particularly the one in Afghanistan and secondarily the one in Iraq that that has had, I believe, is, is going to have a strategic cost as we leave our post-9-11 veterans behind. I mean, it's, it's a good thing to turn the page after a war. It's a good thing to turn the page after a rough event. You know, I talk to my boys about this all the time. When something bad happens, one of my sons plays baseball and I say, you know, You've got to have a short memory. You almost have to have amnesia after you make an error in the middle infield. You've got to just move on. You've got to turn the page. And in many cases, I think that makes a lot of sense, both individually and collectively. We have to do that. But we, we cannot do it at the expense of the warfighters and the family members whose shoulders we heaped this on for 20 fucking years. Like, you, you, you can't do that. Right? Like, like you, you, you can't you can't treat people that way. And it's happening right now. It happened with our Vietnam War veterans. And I think that's why the Vietnam War veterans were so adamant about digging in with us and hugging our necks every time we redeployed and, and looking after us because they and they've told me this in the VFWs and the American Legion says we don't want to see you young guys go through what we went through. That should never happen again. But it is happening. It's a little bit different, but it is happening. It's, in many cases, it's, um, it's under the guise and the shroud of a uncomfortable, thank you for your service, right? But it is happening. The, the page is being turned in a profound way and the country is moving on from the longest war in our nation's history in Afghanistan, 20 plus years, right? Four times longer than World War II. Where, you know less than 1% of the population fought in that war and you know it's, 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 it's being done in such a way as if it never even happened. It's like Serve Pro. never even happened, right And, and, and that causes our warfighters, our, our gold star family members, our military family members, our survivors of suicide to say, what the fuck man did it even matter? Did this even happen? did it count for anything? And then we start to question our identity and our worth, right? And that's where this is just wrong. And so I saw this on full display in Phoenix. I believe it was on Saturday night. We had performed the play for the third and final time. Great crowd. And this woman stands up kind of in the wings of the theaters. We're doing the talk back. She was very emotional. And she said, you know, this play really hit me hard. But she said, Scott, what really hit me was the, 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 the line when you said to your buddy Kenny, how can I let my son fight a war that I couldn't even finish? And, you know, that was a line that really was very early on in this play. It drove the energy of the play. And I felt it because I have an older so- a son who is in the infantry, who that was on my mind uh, because he joined when this thing was still going. And I couldn't help but thank my God my son's going to fight a war that I couldn't finish. And I know a lot of buddies in special ops and elsewhere in the Marines whose sons and daughters did fight in the war and um, sometimes deployed at the same time. And it became a generational war that we passed on to our children. But anyway, as this woman was saying this, she goes, it hit me so hard. She goes, because I was a combat medic in um, Afghanistan, I saw some stuff that really jacked me up. And she goes, but what really got me was my son being at Kabul International Airport um, on a crew chief when all of this went down. And he was shuttling Afghans and diplomats and he was there for all of it. And when that bomb went off and she, this is when she lost it, she was like, you know, I, it took me this number of hours, this number of minutes, this number of seconds to learn that my son was alive because that's all I could think about. And at this point, she she said, you know, the way we left Afghanistan, the way we left our allies, you know, I, I don't want him to be doing this. I'm proud of him, but I just, I don't want this for him. And I don't know how to reconcile it. How do you do it, Scott? And I didn't have any answers for her either. Very proud of my son. Very proud of his service. I typically don't talk about it because I want him to walk his own path. But uh, in this case, in this topic of today's podcast of um, turn the page in, in, in the way that, uh, you know, the strategic cost of leaving our post 911 veterans behind. I could not help but think about this woman, this two, two tour combat medic whose son was at, uh, you know, Kabul International Airport when we had systemically abandoned our allies. And now she's trying to reconcile this as she sits in our fucking play watching a story about a character, a Green Beret team sergeant, trying to figure out how he can reconcile his son going to fight a war he didn't finish in the same country. You see what I mean? Like, this is not accidental. This is this is real. This is, this is a fundamental thing that's happening, and it's happening at scale. There are things that are occurring within our volunteer force and within our nation that we as American citizens, we have to pay attention to. We can't just uncomfortably say, thank you for your service, and then shuffle off and say, thank God that's over with. That was uncomfortable. Like, we... We need the American people. We need our institutional leaders. We need our flag officers, our generals and our admirals, past and present, to stand up in public spaces and advocate in a way that is not happening right now. And we need to take stock of what's going on with all this, and we need to get a handle on this this, this irresponsible way that we are turning the page on the longest war in American history. And there needs to be a different approach to it. Okay, uh, because, because the impact of the, ni- of, of, of the long war, I mean, let's just, let's just take a look at it, all right? I mean, you know, you had 9-11-2001, the, the worst terror attack in our nation's history. We were completely caught off guard. Thousands of Americans were killed on airplanes and in the World Trade Center. Both towers were dropped. Um, the Pentagon, where I lost my ranger buddy, Cliff Patterson, you know that 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 happened um and hundreds of hundreds more at the pentagon and then of course let's not forget those brave souls uh who who died in that pennsylvania field bringing uh the final airliner down when they learned that it was hijacked and then untold amounts of uh financial resources and human capital that followed in this in the worst attack in our nation's history and you know, President Bush at that time, George Bush uh, Jr., you know, uh, he, he GW, he he set us on a path of vengeance, of retribution to the evildoers. And, and you know, he said in the rubble at, at, at Ground Zero with the loudspeaker, many of us remember that, you know, they're going to hear from us. They're going to hear from us real soon. And you know what? I was fucking ready for them to hear from us. And a lot more were as well. We were pissed our knives were out and we were sharpening daggers. We were sharpening tomahawks. We were ready to kill in droves for what had been done to us. You know why? Because it happened on our watch. This happened on our watch and we wanted payback. Now, before I get too much further down this road, I know that I've been talking a lot about Afghanistan. I know that I've been talking a lot about this war and the way it ended and and the veteran issue. But you guys, This podcast focuses on operationalizing what we call the upswing, about getting us to better ground, about, you know, finding your own Pineapple Express, about mobilizing people to take action to help you build the movement that you're building, right? And and you, and becoming relevant in what you do so that you can move people to better days, better ground in your community, your job, your travel ball team, whatever. Um, And that's what we focus on in this podcast, but I just, I'm sorry, I cannot get away from the fact that we are so irresponsibly relegating our national security and the military that I, special operations community that I've loved dearly for all of my adult life, that I gave my youth for, that I lost my friends for um, with such callous indifference. And I believe it is a harbinger of what is to come. If we don't pay attention to this, it's not gonna matter what we build in the nonprofit space or what we build in our cash. It's not gonna matter, right? Because we're gonna find ourselves in a place where um, we have a whole different set of problems on our hands, right? And so I have to at least hit this episode on turn the page because I'm hoping that as you listen to this, not only will you find hope, hopefully some purpose and some and some opportunity for you to stand up for what's happening here and be heard, but also parallel paths where you can take action as well. Right. But getting back to, you know, the impact of 9-11, this horrific terror attack that happened 20 plus years ago. And we set off in the longest war in our nation's history. Right. And it didn't start off that way. I think it started off with the idea that we would go into Afghanistan with, you know, fifth special forces group and a handful of other special operators. We would kill Osama bin Laden. We would turn the Northern Alliance Uh, And, and, you know, not turn them, but mobilize them and help them stand up against Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, push them out of the country and bam, you have a a regime uh, overthrown, unconventional warfare in place. And we're now in a position to, uh, you know, walk the evildoers down and and get the hell out of there. But that's not what happened. It continued to mission creep and morph into the longest war in our nation's history. And that war less than one percent of the American people served in that. The most Americans didn't have any skin in the game. George Bush said it himself when he addressed Congress and he addressed the American people shortly after the attacks. And he said, this war will be fought in the shadows. I'm paraphrasing. It'll be fought in the shadows. You know, it won't be fought in broad daylight. And it will be done by special operators and intelligence personnel. And that's exactly what happened, right? And for the first few years of the war, it was, uh, there was a lot of energy. There was a lot of excitement around it. There was a lot of belief in what we were doing. Um, you know, but the the operational tempo or the op-tempo, as we call it in the military, it was terrible. I mean, you were, you were deployed all the time. You know, for example, Special Forces only has 6,500 active duty members. They only have five operational groups, right? And then by the time Iraq kicked off after Afghanistan in, in 2003, you had two major fronts where at any given time... Two of the special forces group plus another one, at least half of it, were deployed. And the other ones were getting ready to go. In fact, I can remember one of my former commanders, a guy named Ed, saying to me, Scotty, you are in two phases of your life from here on out in this war. You are either in Afghanistan or you are getting ready to go back. And he was absolutely right. That was the fucking truth. That was exactly what our life was like. And it wasn't just like that for me it was like that for Monty, my wife. It was like that for Cody, my son, who was three when the towers fell. And my youngest son at the time, Cooper, who could barely walk, right? They, 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 they grew up with their dad at war, with their mom and dad talking in whispers, with their friends' fathers coming home in caskets covered with flags, with their teachers getting notifications at school. That's what they grew up with. Wondering if their father would come home, walking on eggshells when dad did come home and wondering what you could talk about, not talk about to set dad off. This was the life, and this was at scale. This was a handful of our countrymen who lived this way, our family members who lived this way, but they lived it over and over again for year after year, day after day, month after month. And gradually what happened was the country became disconnected. The American people moved on. The Budweiser commercials and the country music songs lost their luster. And the yellow ribbon started to fade and they get a bit dingy. In fact, there's a line in the play where Danny is so upset that his son Caden has joined the military all these years later. And the American people are so divided and distant and, and not even aware that you know they're still fighting in Afghanistan. And he says to his wife, Lynn, you know, how long do you think it's going to be because he had talked about how his dad and Len's dad had had dog shit thrown at them when they came home from Vietnam. And he said, how long before you think your dingy yellow ribbons turned back into dog shit? Except this time, they're gonna be throwing it at your son, Caden. Dying for your country is one thing, but I have no idea how I'm supposed to live for it, in the words of Sebastian Younger. And, And that is exactly what happened over the years from 2001 and to 2020, 21, is America got disconnected from the war. Right? We got used to seeing it on CNN, used to seeing it on Fox News, But for the most part, you know, even as it says in the, um, the, 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 the report after Kabul by uh, Better Together, or more in common, I think, um, you know, that a large number of civilians don't know veterans. They don't interact with veterans. And frankly, they just became disconnected from the entire thing, and it became this small community this small microcosm of America that was living a radically different life. That's why I wrote Last Out. I wrote Last Out because all the movies and all the books were about the first in, the door kickers, the ones that jump in. And that's great, we need those. But there was no story about the men and women and their families who went back to Afghanistan, back to Iraq, day after day, month after month, year after year. That story was just not told, right? That that, that group of Last Out. And, And we became... People just started to just assume they would always be there. They would always do it. Whenever there was a problem, just throw those guys at it. And it became your life. It became what you did. You just went and you went and you went, right? The politicians, however, were not deep on the war. This included people all the time. I I look at these different politicians, you guys, who seem to like just thump their chest and talk about how this politician on the other side of the aisle is doing such a jacked up job. and This is what I would do. Let me tell you something. Of all the presidential administrations that that led us through the war on terror, they were all underwhelming. They were not deep on what needed to happen. They did not try to get deep on it. Their policymakers and their cabinet members were fucking open mic night amateurs in what they did. They 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 tried to apply their the, the length and term of their administrations time in office as the as the as the length of time that you would get things done. Rather than taking the longer view, rather than taking the bigger view of how do we shut down and render irrelevant, you know, strategic safe havens in rural Afghanistan and in Iraq? Like, how do we create antibodies at a local community level that have the resilience to stand up against these and they don't need us there? How do we build a local capacity to do that over decades, right? No one was willing to hear that. And that tells me that they would much rather go with the preferred Western way of war to force a square peg into a round hole and not even try to understand that Afghanistan was a status society based on honor and shame and much more like the traditional world that we all evolved from thousands of years ago than the modern world that we live in today. And again, you won't find hardly a single politician that even acknowledged that or was tracking that to include our president's. They just weren't deep on it. But guess who else wasn't? The flag officers, the generals and the admirals that prosecuted this war. You know, there's been a lot of talk lately about the role that these individuals played and the level of accountability that ought to be laid at their feet. And I want to be really, really clear on this because I don't want to be one of these guys that just comes out on the other side of the war, served in the war, bitter, throwing bombs at the leaders that I had, right? I I don't wanna do that. I wanna be much more granular about this. I wanna be as thoughtful about this as I can. And so in that vein, the first thing I'm gonna say is I made a ton of mistakes as an army officer, as a Green Beret in the war on terror. I made a ton of mistakes when it came to Afghanistan. Um, I made mistakes that cost men their lives. I made mistakes that resulted in collateral damage. I made mistakes that resulted in uh, missed opportunities, missed strategic opportunities. I made mistakes that were blinded by my desire for retribution and revenge after losing my friend Cliff in the Pentagon and then immediately losing friends on my first deployment. I know this. I I readily admit this in my book, Game Changers, that I wrote right after I got out of the Army in 2013. And I've stood by that. I, 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 I think all of us who served in this war or who performed a function in this war need to take a hard look at ourselves first and own up to it. And I am willing in any forum, as we have these conversations to talk about my mistakes and the role that those mistakes played and what should be done differently and to whatever need accountability needs to be brought to bring it. Now, all that said, um, I have to say that the couple of things that really affected me And how I view the senior level officers around this long war was, you know, I left the Army in 2013. I was selected for a battalion command three times. Um, I turned it down all three times because, frankly, when I saw what was happening with the village stability program in those villages that was working, that was having a profound effect on rural stability, and was much more in step with the flow of that country and, and the Musahiban dynasty and how they had achieved relative stability in years past and how we just left those Afghan vil- villagers in the lurch when we told them we would stay with them for the long haul, another line from the play. And so many of the Afghan villagers who I had initially reached out to, who I had made promises to were killed, who were tortured, their families were killed. And it disgusted me. It left such a bad taste in my mouth that I just couldn't keep going. So I left the army. I turned down three battalion commands, a guaranteed path to full colonel, and probably, um, you know, another command at that level, maybe. Um, but certainly, you know, walked away from a career that was going in the direction that you know you would want a career to go, and I just couldn't be a part of it anymore. So just understand that's my point of reference too. Is is that I understand careers and all this other stuff, but what I've seen from our senior officers, and by senior officers, I'm particularly talking about um, flag officers, generals and admirals, past and present. You know who you are, the shoe fits, wear it, but I have not seen the level of moral courage and leadership that I would have hoped to have seen uh, during the Afghanistan collapse and beyond. Certainly I have not seen the level of courage, moral courage, and leadership that I would expect when dealing with the moral injury and mental health issues that our military community is going through right now. I just, I just, I don't see it. And I'm going to talk more about that in a second, right? Because the bottom line is um, there is a growing body of evidence and a growing body of work that is calling into supreme question, the aptitude and behavior of general officers and admirals and civilian equivalents in the prosecution of this long war and what they told the American people and what they told their own troops, right? A lot of articles, the Afghanistan papers coming out on this, I think it is becoming irrefutable that things were severely modified, severely adapted to reflect a narrative that was simply not true. And I think that's just gonna bear out over the years and that's their legacy. They're gonna have to live with it. I consider myself part of that legacy because I, I was part of that, um, even though I chose my hills to die on, so to speak, at different points in it, and I believe I made a moral stand, I also made plenty of mistakes that contributed to that. But that is something that is also a component of this impact of, of the war, is the way that the generals and the senior leaders prosecuted it, and the cover-ups that possibly come from that. Now the other thing is there are severe growing mental health issues um, with the warrior class that are in, in the military families that I believe started to happen pretty early in the war because of the deployment tempo, because of the constant exposure to trauma, and because of just the small number of forces that were available to fight, um, the breaking points on the families and on the the the, the, the mental resilience and spiritual resilience of our force started to to show up. Uh, as the war drug out, right? I also think that if you look at President Trump and President Biden in particular, I found them both to be woefully ill-prepared to prosecute the war against terrorism. Um, The horrific political outcomes on both levels, President Trump wanted us out of Afghanistan at all costs, and he will always own the horrible Doha agreement that basically completely obviated the Afghanistan government, inexcusable. It was Bush League, it was amateurish. And to cast stones and aspersions at anybody else when you own that one, I wouldn't do it because it it definitely created an environment that when President Biden came in, he took that same treaty, which is terrible, and ran with it, and it was already bad. Now, President Biden fully owns and squarely owns the botched withdrawal, the systemic abandonment of our allies and everything that's gonna come with it, to include, I believe, another attack on the homeland. He's gonna wear that too, and I'm gonna talk more about that. But the reason that I'm calling both of these presidents out is because what disturbs me is as this war drug on and the country became more and more divided, citizens started getting behind their guy and their flag in the ground and defending them while projecting, you know, vomit Onto the other party saying how bad they were at prosecuting the war. The, the reality is they all sucked. And the reality is as American citizens, we should step back, look at our national security, look at our fucking veterans, for God's sakes, and go, you know what? We're going to set party aside here. We're going to do the right thing. Now, I did not get that feeling at all when I testified to the House Foreign Affairs Committee. What I saw was a bunch of, of political, you know, uh, partisan bickering and a loss of focus on the veterans that were sitting right in front of those congressional leaders, in an absence of leadership that could actually maybe have leveled some accountability and 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 owned the problem in a way that you would expect to to see politicians do when they're sitting in front of veterans who fought a war. Like, but but that's not what has happened. Now, what has happened instead uh, are these divided, you know, this divided nation that each backs their guy. Right. And and, and is, is intellectually dishonest about the role their guy played in this cumulative march toward failure. Right. And that has manifested in a range of things that if we don't get a handle on our children and maybe even us are going to reap it in a very, very big way. Right. The, the, the lead up to the withdrawal um, was irresponsible and uninformed. And Trump owns it for the Doha agreement and Biden sure as fuck owns it for a horrible, horrible withdrawal, right? It was a systemic wholesale abandonment of our Afghan allies in the worst possible way. Um, And it caused a need for volunteers, mostly veterans to mobilize and from the intelligence community, right? To step forward and do what they could to get their allies out, right? And whether that was Task Force Pineapple, Flanders Fields, Team America, Relief, they were all doing some version of that. And they were stepping in because they looked at our institutional leaders and said, nobody's coming, right? We're gonna leave our allies to die and we're gonna dishonor a promise that we were held to that standard for throughout a 20 year war. We were, we were conditioned to win hearts and minds and build capacity and never leave your allies behind, right? And then we violated at every level that's that, that that sanctimonious, um, honorable approach to working by, with, and through indigenous people, we just uh, walked away from it. And yes, our politicians drove that and our policymakers, but I'm sorry, the senior level admirals and generals and sergeants major and senior enlisted advisors, you wear it too. You wear it too, whether you were prior service or whether you were on active duty or in the reserve and Guard. If you did not make yourself known in that moment, then you're going to own that for the rest of your life, and you have to live with it. That's all I can say, right? But but it was a, it was a moment where volunteer groups stepped up and did what they had to do, did what they could do, uh, and we're still seeing this some version of this volunteer effort in in Afghanistan, in Ukraine, and most recently in Africa, with the non-combatant evacuation there. You're seeing these. These volunteer groups that are not only working it remotely like Pineapple did, but they're actually going over to these places and they're working in these places and they're filling gaps that they feel should be filled. Now, we can have a whole different podcast episode on that. I have some concerns about that um, because I don't know how that ends. You know, volunteer groups that are forming up all, you know, in these different places and filling the gaps that would normally be filled by. The security instrument of power of our country? I just I don't know how that ends. And I, and I don't know what that looks like in the future. You know, um, how, what does that evolve into? And I believe this whole private public partnership approach, we're going to have to start having some deep and meaningful conversations on that, both at the formal and informal level to figure it out. Or it's going to probably end badly, right? With some kind of atrocity or horrific event. Um, but... At the end of the day, when you look at the impact of this long war, squarely is the moral injury uh, resulting from the abandonment. The moral injury, particularly on our Afghanistan war veterans and our post 9 11 veterans, right? We had allies killed, commandos, special forces, interpreters, judges that we had worked with, who in some cases had saved our lives. You know, I'm standing here today because on several occasions, my Afghan friends saved my life or took measures that saved my life. And when it was flipped around and their parents were in trouble or their loved ones, for the most part, I was unable to get them out. And in one case, one of my cultural advisor's father who, who really you know saved my life on, on several occasions, I couldn't help him. And I had to tell him, I'm sorry, man, I can't help your mom and dad. And, and the, the, the level of shame and guilt that came from that, you know, was terrible. And, And even worse for our partners in the commandos and the Afghan special forces, who we could have been over there for months in advance as the unconventional warfare experts in special forces, building a plan for resilience, building a plan for resistance. The CIA did it. The CIA director went over to Afghanistan well before the collapse and started working the withdrawal plan in total for the paramilitary forces in the CIA. Special Operations Command did not do that in any capacity. Now, you say, well, the, the politicians wouldn't let us. Really? Because last time I fucking checked when the war started, the politicians were trying to tell us how to fight the war. Rumsfeld was trying to tell us how to fight the war. And in 06 from 5th Special Forces Group and some ambitious warrant officers and senior NCOs came down to Tampa and came up with an outrageous fucking plan, an unconventional warfare plan, a bottom-up plan that was submitted and approved, right, that became Operation Enduring Freedom 1, right, that became a combined Joint Special Operations Task Force with an 06 colonel at the head who uttered something to the effect of, I'm the fucking warlord of Afghanistan, as he rolled in there. And And on horseback with the Northern Alliance and other various tribes and the application of surgical strike munitions from fighter aircraft, they rolled the Taliban back in the Al-Qaeda in less than 100 days with less than 100 men. Now, you fucking tell me that our community doesn't have the audacity and the horsepower to roll in and bottom up influence things. We didn't do any of that, right? Instead, there wasn't a single special forces team on the ground during the collapse at Kabul International Airport. Now, I'm not blaming any teams on that, obviously. There's no way they could affect that. But at the senior level, we absolutely could have affected that. And no one will ever convince me otherwise, right? Because we've done it throughout our history. We did it with Operation Ma Bell and Just Cause. We did it in the Philippines. We have constantly put forward, we did it with safe border between Peru and Ecuador, right? We have constantly put forward bottom up nominated with village stability operations from the bottom up. There was no evidence of it at all. Now, if someone has it, please let me know. And I will correct myself on air anytime, right? But what I'm telling you from what I've seen and in my research and in talking to a shit turn of operators and green berets, we didn't do that, right? We didn't do that. And that moral injury that was incurred was massive. Allies killed in droves. National security affected in a very big way. The emergence of 20 plus violent extremist organizations to include Al Qaeda and ISIS-K in a new sanctuary in in Afghanistan that that is probably worse than pre 9-11, right? Commandos fighting for Russia in Ukraine, recruited in Iran because their families, when they jumped over the border to hide from the Taliban, Their families were rolled up by the Kudz forces and then co-opted the men to go fight. Recruiting and retention in the military are down horribly. The impact of the long war goes on. I saw a poll where just over 50% of the American people have confidence in the U.S. military. It was in the 70s, all through the war on terror, Right? We had worked so hard to build that social capital and that institutional trust, it plummeted after the collapse in Afghanistan. Why? I'll tell you why. I believe that we have broken the social contract with our veterans and our military families. The American people now, and and I'm sorry, but I get a little adamant about this. The American people have broken the contract, the social contract with the all-volunteer force. And until that is reestablished, the volunteer force, our national security, and our moral compass are at risk. There is a, at the heart of it, I believe, is leadership. There, and this is where I think you can find parallels for your corporation. This is where I think you can find parallels for your, your community. But th- there is a massive gap, I believe, uh, between the leaders and the lead. And I'm seeing it every day. I, I, was, I That's why I started off this podcast interview by talking about the talkbacks and, and the time that I've just spent at the street level, you guys listening, asking questions and listening to iconic special operations senior NCOs and very, very well-known warrant officers and people who understand this problem and Gold Star family members and 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 family members who have survived the suicide of their military loved one. Like, it's bad, you know? And this violation of this social contract has has happened and is ongoing. And it is all in the shadow of a moral injury that I think we're on the front, it is the front end of a mental health tsunami. I said this in my, in my testimony to the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I continue to say this, I stand by it. And as I travel around the country and I'm talking to these various, NCOs, high performing, active duty and retired and transitioned operators who are in places that I never thought they would be mentally, where I've been mentally that I never thought I would be, you know, and, and when you look at the leadership that's in play right now, the distance between the leaders and the lead, the distance between the men and women at the most senior level who we trusted in this war. And, th- and, and, and those who follow them is a is the Grand Canyon. It's a Grand Canyon. And the crazy thing is the leaders don't seem to get it. They don't seem to get it at a political level, at a presidential level, at a congressional level. They certainly don't get it at the general officer and flag officer level. It's as if nothing's changed. It's as if nothing happened. The page has been turned, right? The president has not mentioned in a, in a way that you would expect a commander in chief to mention the noble service of his war fighters and the military families that sacrificed so much in two consecutive um, states of the Union. How is that possible? Now, yes, there's been mention about burn pits and shit like that, but there's been no mention of fighting the longest war in our nation's history and, and what it took to do that right, and and the acknowledgement of our allies and, and that they bravely fought. It's as if, boys and girls, it never even happened. Surf pro, right? It's as if it never even happened. And you've got Secretary Blinken, the Secretary of State, who has in, you know, private sessions with different volunteer groups thanked the volunteer groups and then said, hey, we're gonna need you to do our job a while longer right, telling veterans that you're gonna, we're going to need your help in safe passage, we're going to need your help in resettlement. You know, after all that these veterans have been through in a 20-year war, you're going to lay this at their feet, right? It's like one of, the, uh, one of the, the amazing leaders from Task Force Argo said when I asked her about this, she just said, we just want our lives back. We just want our lives back. They've been on the world's longest 911 call, right? They haven't been able to hang up the phone with their Afghan partners. They've had to listen to the screams and the tears and the shrieks of pure terror and frustration and agony as these people have endured more horror than they should ever have to endure. And these veterans and these other volunteers have stood at their shoulder the entire time. And you're gonna have a Secretary of State say, we need you to do it longer, right? Inexcusable, incorrigible. You also have the White House spokesman who said, I didn't see any chaos from my perch. I don't know where that's coming from. How is that possible? This guy was a f- former senior officer in the military making a comment like that. I talked to Aiden Gunderson, you know, and he's, this was the medic in Operation Pineapple Express with the 82nd who was at Abbey Gate who triaged those wounded when the explosion happened. And he goes, well, I wish he'd have been sitting in my fucking perch because I saw plenty of chaos. To make that kind of comment is so tone deaf and so disconnected from the men and women who served in this fight, how can they expect these people to follow them? How can they expect to be respected, right? How can they expect recruiting or retention to be anything other than what it is in the toilet? Like, it's the most fundamental element of leadership, yet I keep seeing it in our institutional leaders on both sides of the aisle, completely ill-prepared and unworthy of the sacrifice and service of men like Aidan Gunderson, right? Who, 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 who gave everything to try to save lives and help people other than their lives. And those 13 who gave their lives. There's a massive gap between leaders and the lead. 800,000 Afghanistan war veterans plus. 73% of them, according to the report after Kabul, which we'll put in the show notes, Feel betrayed. Sixty-seven percent feel humiliated. Three out of five U.S. veterans say they feel like strangers in their own country. Eighty thousand plus calls to the VA hotline, according to an NBC report by Melissa Chen, um, in March alone of 2023. That's the largest number of calls in volume to the VA hotline that exceeded even the worst day in COVID. And the uh, the actual collapse in Afghanistan, and at the end of the day, man, you know the flag officers that that we once trusted for this, we don't trust them anymore, right? We just we did. One, my buddy Perry, who was a one of the original horse soldiers in Afghanistan, who now runs nonprofits in Ukraine and Afghanistan, uh, a nonprofit called Afgh Free, and he said, you know, these guys, these generals that I revered in the war, he goes, they're barely peers to me, man they're barely pierced to me. Because where are they, you know? And, and and as I go around talking to NCOs who fought in this war time and time again, they always ask me the same question, where are the generals? Where are they now? Like they were, you couldn't swing a dead cat when those guys were talking to Congress or TV, but now, you know, where are they talking about this moral injury, talking about this abandonment? Now there's some of them talking about Ukraine, right? And China and Taiwan and Africa, and all of a sudden we're trusting these guys again. Like, what the hell is that about? How is that possible? Why would we lay our trust at their feet after the fact that this abandonment happened the way it did and an entire generation of warfighters has been left on the side of the road? I'm not even kidding you. And, and And then I've had, through my interviews with Operation Pineapple Express and just running the seams, some of the most senior, highly respected members of the special operations community have said things and indicated things that reflect a complete tone-deaf nature to this gap between the leaders and the lead. I had one of the highest ranking officers of the entire Afghanistan evacuation on the ground at Kabul International Airport when I explained to him what I was seeing in terms of the moral injury and the impact of the commandos and other Afghan special operators being left behind and how it was landing with these guys. This was in February of 2022. He just kind of stopped and he said, wow, I thought they would have been over this by now. I'm not fucking kidding you. I heard it with my own ears. I heard probably the most senior officer in the special operations community, one of the most revered men in the entire inventory, say to a room of assembled special operators, mostly retired, at an event. You know, I'm hearing all this talk about betrayal. This is what he says from the podium as a keynoter all this talk about betrayal, don't do that. It makes you look like a victim, a victim, right? The same individuals who have cashed in their checking accounts, cashed in their bank accounts, cashed in their kids' college funds, right? Put their businesses on hold, shuttered their plans so that they could honor a promise to their Afghan allies because the government and their leadership didn't are victims, are acting like victims. And then we wonder why the suicide rate is skyrocketing past 22 a day. We wonder why the substance abuse, the 80,000 plus calls into the VA hotline, we wonder why all of that's happening. And, And the very officers who should be stepping into the breach and leading a conversation toward moral recovery are leveling accusations of victimhood on a population of warfighters who voluntarily served them in combat for multiple tours along with their families. It reflects the most asinine failure of leadership I have ever seen. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just calling it like I see it, right? It is, it is unfathomable that these senior leaders would make these kind of remarks, right? And I, I tell you, there's an article that my friend Jason Halk wrote called Afghanistan's war generals are a wall. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's pretty close to it. And it is, it is absolutely astounding, right? It is, it is one of the most uh, powerful uh, articles um, that I have, that I have ever seen. Um, You know, it, um, his website is um, gosh, what is it called? Dispatches from Pinehurst is the name of his website, and you know I'm looking it up right now because I, I want to be able to share this with you guys because um, they're they're so damn good, um, you know he is uh, he he is he is just an amazing amazing writer, but he wrote an article um, about the Afghanistan generals, and I I want to share some of it with you because um, I think it would be a really really um, Powerful, powerful, powerful article to share with you. So stand by, and I'm going to bring it up right now. Okay, we're back. I got it. And uh, I'm just going to read it. You know, I just I, I want to read it to you because it's so profound. And I want to know what you think about it. Jason says, as we approach the dark anniversary of the abandonment of Afghans by the NATO coalition, I am struck by the absence of most former leaders. I worked beside many of the generals that served in Afghanistan. Your troopers have questions, and they need your help. Hundreds of NATO generals and admirals served in Afghanistan in what was likely the longest war in their country's history. Yet if you look at who is publicly working to help veterans cope with the fallout of this failure, it's not the generals and flag officers. At a moment when veterans need their leaders the most, there are simply few to be found. Simply few to be found. It is good that some senior leaders are working quietly in nonprofit organizations that are caring for organizations and their families. But generals and admirals are not just needed behind the scenes right now. They need to be out front where their soldiers and Marines can see them. I am working in the public spaces, Jason says, to help the Afghans we betrayed and the military community that is reeling from this betrayal. I'm seeing veterans still working to evacuate their Afghan friends. I am watching military families use what little money they have to care for resettling Afghans. I am seeing the frustration, anger, confusion, and the disbelief in most veterans as they try to come to terms with the political decision to abandon the war against terrorists in the hotbed of South Asian terror safe havens. And this is exactly the same thing I'm talking about that I've seen. Jason goes on, the failure to leave Afghanistan honorably is crushing the souls of veterans. Depression, PTS, physical health issues, and even suicide can all be attributed to the bad policy decisions of elected leaders in numerous NATO nations. Suicide is the gut punch to most veterans. We are all struggling as we watch former comrades make the worst choice. Most of us are helpless to intervene. Those warriors who literally grew up in Afghanistan, need leadership. Right now, more former ambassadors to Afghanistan are publicly showing leadership than our generals. Good for state, bad for the military. Diplomats are not who our veterans are looking to for answers. There are some exceptions, of course, and I've said the same thing, you know who you are, if the shoe fits, wear it. A few retired US generals are speaking openly about the failed policy that got us here and offering ideas for helping Afghans and helping the veterans that are struggling. What veterans don't need are the generals who didn't even serve in Afghanistan, helping the politicians in DC to avoid coming to terms with this catastrophe. It is time for the generals who commanded divisions, Corps, ISAF, regional commands, and the, uh, the Afghan National Defense Forces, training commands, special ops commands, and other units to stand up for the veterans and Afghans, and speak out. Give us words that show you understand the strain military families are under. Call on politicians to hold elected and appointed leaders accountable for the dishonorable exit. This is a big one. Have you seen any generals or flag officers calling upon politicians to hold people accountable? Right, have you, heard, have you seen that? Or to, to call upon special forces command, to, to, to look at lessons learned and make adjustments so this doesn't happen again for our young Green Berets. Call for the full evacuation of every Afghan SIV and at-risk person, Jason goes on, that so loyally stood beside us. Make yourself useful to veterans and Afghans. And I'm wrapping it up here. And this is powerful. So I want you to listen to this and let this sink in. And again, if the shoe fits and you're an officer listening to this, senior officer, so be it. It's not too late to step up. This is no time to enjoy your retirement, make money hand over fist, write a book, work on your political ambitions, or pretend that you have no role in this war. Do not let the lower-ranking members of the services do all the work to sort out this debacle. I'm tired of seeing so many young people struggle to take care of their families and try to resolve all the problems spilling over from this failed war effort generals and admirals around the globe that includes afghan military officers that were part of the war need to be leaders live up to your oaths continue to counsel and advocate for what your people need let those younger veterans know that they are not alone in their anger frustration confusion and desire to see us make up for our mistakes this is no time to be awol your soldiers marines seamen and airmen have not given you permission to sit this one out get in the game or think, back, think about giving back the stars we helped you earn and we let you wear. Powerful words. It's powerful words, but, but I think it rings true in so many ways. And look, I think if, if more of our flag officers, past and present, can step into the arena and start to talk about just, okay, even if it's not the Afghanistan problem set, like which it needs to be, but just the moral injury on our forces and what it's meant to them and what they're going through. I mean, we need leaders to step in and acknowledge that, that most of the studies on moral, moral injury can confirm that in order to move from moral injury to moral recovery, you need leaders that are stepping in on that. Right. Uh, it's just, <laughs> we, we can't do it without you. Right. And iconic operators left and right are saying, there's no way I'm going to let my kid serve. Right. So, so, so what does this all mean? You know, I'm going to I'm going to start to land the chopper here and I'm going to I'm going to lay this out. But, but here's what I think this all means if we don't, as a nation, as leaders, start to come together around. This, this is not the time for finger pointing. It is a time for accountability. Right. But, but first of all, the impact to our national security. We have multiple conformed reports of over 20 plus violent extremist organizations to include Al Qaeda, to include ISIS-K operating with impunity in safe haven in Afghanistan, right? Less or just 20 years ago, the worst terror attack where we started this podcast in our nation's history emanated from that very place, right? Do we really think that these organizations with that same kind of overwhelming narrative to, to bring the great Satan to its knees, and in some cases, even usher in end of days, do you think that that has subsided, right? We have to consider the risk to our homeland. And I know we have a short memory, but my God, the the, the 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 aspect of will and capacity, when you think about an enemy, this is one of the things I always try to lay out is, yes, China's dangerous. Yes, Russia's dangerous. But you have to look at will and capacity, right? You have to look at the ability of the enemy to to, to actually have the capacity to project violence upon you. But you also have to look at their will. Are they willing to risk total annihilation? Are they willing to risk everything that the United States can throw at them in terms of its military might, economic horsepower, law enforcement? When you look at Russia and you look at China, it's a big question mark. Maybe, maybe they are. But it's going to be a very cold, calculated move. Whereas groups like ISIS-K, And ISIS, Maine, they are operating off of a narrative that ushers in the end of days, that restores a caliphate, right? That is driven by an emotional story, a narrative of what could be. And their will to do that is off the chain. And by giving them an unfettered safe haven where they can train, refit, plan, prepare, project, their capacity grows daily. And it is the devil's cocktail and no one's talking about it, right? And and so, so that for us, the risk to the homeland and, and the future exploitations that could go along with that of our former Afghan special operators, they could be part of that plan just through co-opting them. I mean, we already know they're fighting in Ukraine. Where else are these highly trained Afghan special operators going to show up because their families are being held at gunpoint, right? It's just something that we're not even talking about, but it could totally manifest within a very short period of time, right? What is the impact on our standing globally, right? Who's gonna actually trust us in the world? You know, we have a multi-generational systemic habit of wholesale abandonment of our allies. The Montagnards in Vietnam, the Kurds in Syria, the Iraqi police and military, the Iranians under the Shah, Afghanistan, when the, the first time it was overthrown, we abandoned them by, when the Soviets went in and then we did it again, most recently. I mean, we have a running record of multi-generational abandonment. It has become our MO, right? And you don't get a mulligan when it comes to trust. If you, if we treated our friends that way, we would be so isolated. If you did that, if you did that to your circle of friends, you would have no friends. It would be you against the world right? And that's not a good place to be in the kind of world that we live in, but that is exactly what we're doing. It is, it is so irresponsible at a social capital level. Like it violates the shit we teach our kids in kindergarten, right? And what happens when we have to go back into Afghanistan? What happens when there's a catastrophic attack on the homeland and we load up lock, stock and barrel as the country music songs and the bright yellow ribbons go back out? Except this time it's our kids on those C-17s. I talk about this in the epilogue of Operation Pineapple Express. What are we gonna be facing then? It's not gonna be a, a, a willing Northern Alliance front, most likely, it's gonna be a bunch of pissed off commandos who have had their families assassinated and who've been on the run for five years and have a bone to pick with us. That's gonna be the first thing that our children gift are gifted from us when they have to go back and fight in that country. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Our military readiness and our security at home. Like we see the recruiting dropping. The army missed its goal by 25%. There's been an exodus in retention. People are leaving the military in droves and everybody's scratching their head at the institutional senior leader level. I don't understand it. There's not a propensity to serve with today's young people. Fucking, are you serious? Right? I have talked to so many special forces and special ops NCOs. Just one last night, an iconic JTAC, uh, a combat um joint air controller who had deployed with third special forces group and others multiple times. And we were talking about his kids going in the army. He's like, no fucking way, man, no way. My kids joining the army. Now that is not the kind of talk that this guy's a patriot. He deployed multiple times <coughs> and he's proud of his work, but he doesn't want his kid to have anything to do with it. This is not in isolation. This is happening all over the place. We know that in a time of a volunteer army, when you've had this much prolonged warfare, that the the bulk of the military, a large chunk of your gunslingers are gonna come from other gunslingers. It's our boys and girls, our nieces, our nephews, our sons, our daughters, who we say, okay son, yeah. And they look to us for that kind of guidance and approval. They look to us for that kind of acknowledgement. And the social contract has been violated. And when our children see that violation happen and the effect that it has had on us and the level of betrayal, we can't hide that from our kids. We can't hide that from our nephews and nieces. They see it. They know it. They're smart. And they're going to, if they even go in, it's going to be with a jaundiced eye and one foot in the water, one foot out. And, 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 and what you're going to get is not the level of commitment and loyalty because of what happened to their parents and their uncles and their nephews or their uncles and their aunts right? The betrayal of trust and the broken social contract. Um, It's happening, right? And and if we don't get a handle on it, we're going to have veterans continuing to lose faith in the institutions that they served, right? That social contract of the volunteer force is going to continue to unravel like a rope with too much weight on it, right? With an anvil at the end of it, a 20-year-old rope that's been out in the weather and it's just unraveling and unraveling. And eventually it's gonna break apart and that anvil is gonna fall, right? And when it falls, it is a collapse at a time when this country can't afford that. We have division within the country at every possible kind of level, socioeconomic, racial, political, and divisionist leaders who are fomenting it. And we have wolves creeping around at the nation state level, like South Korea, China, Russia, and we also have wolves at the, at the non-state actor level, like ISIS-K and Al-Qaeda, who are gathering strength as we speak. This is not the time for that anvil to fall because the rope can't hold it. And we have generals and admirals and politicians who are completely tone deaf to the whole thing and just trying to flip the pages if it never happened so that they can preserve those careers. They can preserve those positions on the board of defense companies, not rock the boat. But the cost of all of this is going to be far deeper than anything that we ever imagined. The moral injury continues to grow. And guess what? There are things afoot right now that are addressing it. These volunteer groups, uh, the one I'm part of, the federation called Moral Compass. You know, it has had a profound effect. They are, I believe in many ways, the moral compass for this nation. Right? But but, but as that's happening, the suicide rates are still going up. Homelessness and addiction of our veterans is going up. Right. And, and, and we've got to find a pathway to reestablishing that social contract. And we've got to find a pathway to some level of moral healing, moral recovery. We need top down leadership. We need our generals and our admirals and our politicians to set the politics aside, set the careers aside. And let's let's roll up our sleeves and let's work together, first and foremost, to address this moral injury. Now, what that's going to require is us to get louder as citizens if it doesn't happen. We've got to continue to get louder about this. And I love the fact that, for example, Operation Allies Refuge, the the men and women that were at Kabul International Airport, you know, kind of the last group of post-9-11 veterans, the youngest ones, are really finding their voice now. And they're getting loud, and they need to. There must be accountability. I hope that the House Foreign Affairs Committee is going to set the partisanship bullshit aside and get accountability on this thing. Right? We need the Afghan Adjustment Act passed. We need to get our most at risk Afghan allies out of there, but we also need accountability. There needs to be people held accountable for what happened in the the military levels, the, the, the administration levels, and there need to be assurances put in place that this is not gonna happen again to our kids. Otherwise, we're not gonna give that wink and a nod to a lot of our offspring to go serve because we don't wanna see that happen to them what happened to us. And if you don't like that as a senior officer, I'm sorry, right? If that's not what you want to hear, but that is not victimhood, right? That is making a moral stand the way you taught us to make it. And we need you to join us on it. There has to be accountability, safe passage and resettlement wherever it's possible. And we need to change the system to prevent the kind of abandonment that's happening out there. And if there's not this perceived change, then the veterans are not going to come along with it right? There also needs to be an increased outreach to isolated veterans. This is this is getting out of control, right? We have veterans suck starting pistols all over the country. And if we don't increase the outreach to them, this is going to continue to happen. And nobody else is coming. Does anybody wake up this morning and go, oh, fucking thank God for Washington, D.C. That's awesome. No, it's just us. And so we're going to have to, we're going to have to be the ones to, to step up. We're going to have to be the ones to reach out to our to our veterans. And I see a lot of movement happening, a lot of uh, through the arts, songs that have been written by veterans, the play, Last Out, there's all kinds of stuff that we can do, but we're gonna have to continue that outreach to our isolated veterans and the military family members. And again, flag officers, generals, admirals, we need you to stand up and advocate in a powerful way. Now I can tell you, for me, um, I'm I'm, I am not going to be able to stop what I'm doing on this because it hits me so deeply. Uh, my friend Brad, uh, who I served with in special forces, he was in 20th group. We were in Afghanistan together in 06, you know, he, he was found dead in a hotel room because he just couldn't take it anymore. And I I've still got the texts on my phone and i still read them all the time when Kabul was collapsing and he just started to fall apart. And his wife, Dana confirmed to me that that's when it started, you know, and, um, I'm going to do everything I can to be a storyteller and a voice for our community, for you, whether you've served or not. Um, media, social media, you know, Operation Pineapple Express, the book. We're going to put the paper back out soon. Um, I'm pushing for a documentary, even a film. Whatever we can do to increase the amount of Americans who give a shit about this. And it's not just a thank you for your service. We're going to keep pushing the last out play hard through the hero's journey and any other venue that we can to get this out there so that people understand why the Afghanistan withdrawal happened, they understand the story, they understand the impact of modern war and they understand what this small percentage of warfighters and their families have gone through and how we need to be there for them as citizens and stand at their shoulder. You know, it's like my buddy Clay said, he said, you know, in his in his dissertation, and most veterans don't need therapy. What they need uh is to, is to is to is to, is to have meaningful connections with their neighbors at the community level and to have their stories heard without judgment and then to walk that path of healing together. That's what they need. And you know, that's what we're doing with last out. That's what we're doing with the hero's journey. And I hope you'll be a part of that because that's something we can do at a community level, right? We can give a voice and a platform to these veterans and, and make up your own mind, look at these problems and get loud, you know, because if we lose the moral compass of this nation, if we lose the social contract, with our volunteer force, guys, nothing else is gonna matter because you're not gonna be able to secure the liberties of, of self-reliance and small business and everything else that this country is founded on. It won't matter. It won't be there. And it's not a foregone conclusion or an entitlement that we're gonna happen. Have it. That's victimhood. That's victimhood. To, to 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 proclaim that you don't have these things and that we're, you know, we're all divided and th- this is unfair. I mean, that's victimhood. But to take an active role in trying to preserve the moral compass and moral fabric of our nation and our, and our, and our volunteer force and advocate for those men and women who fought for you and fought for me, man, that's, that's activism in a, in a very, very powerful way. So how about you? Does it matter? Does what I'm saying resonate or am I just another veteran going off the rails? I hope that it does resonate. I hope that it does land with you. And I hope that you're asking yourself how you will keep America and irresponsible leaders from turning the page on this long war and on the veterans and their families who fought it. Because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves in another one and nobody to fight it. Thanks for what you do. And I'll see you on the rooftop.